Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me on a deep dive into the history of Christianity, into the ancient church, the early church fathers, the formation of the canon of scripture, how the Bible was put together and how it was used and understood, and why some churches worshipped one way and other churches worshipped another way. Well, as I began to receive answers and look deeper and, and read history and theology, I encountered the ancient Catholic Church. It looms large in the study of Christian history, and there it was. And it was really then when I began to read from Catholic theologians and historians that I realized that what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought I knew about Catholicism, was based in large part on misinformation, and more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap, the gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Normally, I have a real Catholic thinker on this podcast each and every week, talk about a real Catholic topic from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. That's what we normally do. And while there's still no misinformation, our format is a bit different this week, and it's a fantastic episode that I can't wait to share with you. It's great, guys. I'm joined, rejoined, by my good friend, evangelical YouTuber, Austin Suggs, to co-host a second discussion between our good friends, Dr. Gavin Ortland, pastor at First Baptist Church in Ojai, California, and Joe Heschmeyer, author of Pope Peter from Catholic Answers Press, to talk about the papacy. Is the papacy true? Is there a pope in the ancient church? Is there evidence for the pope in, in scriptures? In the very first groups of Christians? What should we make of all of this? It's Joe and Gavin and Austin and I, in large part, just sit back and ask a question once in a while. It's a great conversation. You're going to love this. And this is the thing. This is really the, the heart of this podcast. These cordial, intelligent, kind discussions between two people who might agree, but in this case, disagree, and do so with kindness and cordiality and really intelligent, thought-out answers. It's a fantastic episode to dig way, way deep into the subject of the papacy. And guys, it's a wild ride and a great conversation. This podcast is brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Even $1 a month goes a long way into helping to keep this show going and growing. $5 or more a month, patrons are entered into draws for free books every single month. Everyone gets access to exclusive early content, early access, behind-the-scenes show I produce every month, and all kinds of other perks along the way. PayPal.me slash CordialCatholic for a one-time donation. Thank you guys for your support of this show. It makes conversations like this one possible. If you want to watch this episode, head over to Austin's YouTube channel, Gospel Simplicity, and have a look there. It's also been recorded, thanks in large part to the patrons. You guys make those kinds of things possible. So thank you. And now, without any further ado, here's a conversation on the papacy with Dr. Gavin Ortland and Joe Heschmeyer, co-hosted by my good friend, Austin Suggs. Please listen and enjoy. 
everyone. Welcome back to the Gospel Simplicity Cordial Catholic crossover. Uh, in this episode, we're going to talk about the papacy. I don't know, Austin, if we have like a catchy title created yet for this video, but we should. We will eventually. <laughs> We have uh, two guests back on with us. If you watch part one of this video uh, on being deep in history, you'll know kind of the format and, and our wonderful guests, but I'll introduce them again for you in case you haven't watched that part yet. We're joined by Joe Heschmeyer. Joe is a litigator in Washington, D.C. and a seminarian for the Archdiocese of Kansas City. He now works as an instructor for the Holy Family School of Faith Institute. He has a degree in theology from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome, and his writings have appeared in Catholic Answers Magazine, The Washington Times, Word on Fire, First Things and Strange Notions. He co-hosts, rather audaciously titled, The Catholic Podcast, Weekly, and that's a blog called Shameless Popery, where he's blogged since 2009. Most recently, Joe's written Pope Peter, defending the church's most distinctive doctrine from Catholic Answers Press. Joe, happy to have you back with us. Welcome and hello. Thank you so much. I, I would just ask listeners and viewers whether it's more audacious to call it the Catholic podcast or the cordial Catholic, because at least I'm not making any claims about my own cordiality. <laughs> it's always been an aspirational title for me. So if that helps, I don't know. <laughs> I'm starting a new blog called Shameless Cordiality, just so you can. <laughs> can I write there too? Like, maybe a little like. Uh, uh, <laughs> Dr. Gavin Ortland is our other guest, uh, senior pastor uh, of First Baptist Church in Ojai, California. He is a PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary in Historical Theology, an MDiv from Covenant Theological Seminary, and is the author of a number of fine books, including Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, Why We Need Our Past to Have a Future, Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation, Ancient Wisdom for Current Controversy, and Anselm's Pursuit of Joy, a commentary on the Proslogian from Catholic University of America Press. Gavin has a YouTube channel called Truth Unites, where you can find him responding to issues just like this one in some fantastic videos he's got up there. Gavin, thank you for being here. Welcome and hello. Hey, thanks for setting this up, guys. I've been looking forward to it. Well, we have been too. This is going to be an awesome time, I think. Uh, a lot of fun and a good cordial conversation, I think. It was last time, and I expect even more cordiality and great digging into these cool topics uh, on the papacy today. So, Austin, you have our first question. Yeah, and thanks again, guys, for being here. Keith, thanks for setting this up. When you initially talked about having this conversation, I thought this would be an absolute blast. And then we had the first one, and it exceeded even my expectations. It was so much fun. So thank you guys so much for being back to do it again. I think this is going to be really, really fun. So as Keith said, we're going to be talking about the papacy today. And I wanted to start off by just getting a sense of the importance of this doctrine. Joe, the subtitle of your book calls the papacy the church's most distinctive doctrine. It's been said that the papacy acts as both a cornerstone and a stumbling block. To get a sense for the importance, would you say that if someone walks away from this convinced of the truth of the papacy, they should become Catholic? And alternatively, if they walk away convinced it's false, should they not be Catholic? Joe, I'll give that to you first. And then Gavin, I'd like to hear your thoughts as well. Uh, you know, there's a lot to put on this particular conversation, but I'd say in general, <laughs> the answer is yeah. Um, you know, as, as the subtitle says, it is the most distinctive doctrine in Catholicism. That doesn't mean it's the most important. Like, there are more important ones, like the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, like the divinity of Christ, those kind of things. Uh, 
But you can believe in all of that and not be Catholic. You can't logically uh, believe in the papacy and not be Catholic without just out and out disobeying God, without like just refusing to go where you think God is following. They're like where God is pointing rather. So in that sense, like that, it's the most distinctive, but I'd say it's not the same as most important, but there's a second reason too, which is that um, like, imagine someone hearing Jesus of Nazareth preaching and considering whether or not to follow him. It would be a total mistake to begin with whether they agree or disagree with his tax policy about rendering unto Caesar or whether they like or dislike what he has to say, but turning the other cheek, the appropriate Christian response uh, would be that, you know, that's a backwards way of, of doing it. That the right way is to ask, you know, who do you say that he is? The question that Jesus poses in Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16, that if Jesus is the Christ, if he is who he presents himself as being, then we can trust him on all that other stuff, whether we find it intuitive or counterintuitive, whether we would naturally agree or disagree with it. We can, we can trust it. On the other hand, if he isn't the Christ, then it doesn't really matter if he's got good tax policy, if he's, you know, good on peace issues or whatever else. Um, because, you know, as, as C.S. Lewis points out, he'd be either a liar or a lunatic. Well, likewise. Uh, and so, oh, by the way, that also, like, I want to add, that also makes the job a lot easier. Like, you don't have to figure out where you happen to line up on 50 different Christian teachings to see if you should be a Christian or not. You've got to figure out one teaching, you know, is Jesus who he says he is? And then the other teachings fall in their proper place. And so I think Catholics and Protestants would agree on that point. I would just say the same thing is going to be true, that the Catholic Church doesn't just claim to have the best human answers. She claims to be of divine origin. And so either she is or isn't. So if she is of divine origin, then the papacy is true. We should all be Catholic. And then we can trust what the magisterium, you know, the teaching authority of the church says on everything else. If that isn't true, then the church has just gotten like really lucky on a lot of really important issues. And it, you know, she still is at heart a false church because she, she claims as to her own identity, something false. So I'd say that's the question to get straight. And so that's why I'm really excited to have this conversation. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. And Gavin? Yeah, I can be brief on this one because I know some of the other topics will probably take a little longer to unpack, but I would agree with Joe on this just for the importance of this issue. So I would agree if you are convinced of the papacy, you should become Catholic. If you're convinced the papacy is not true, you shouldn't be Catholic. And uh, in other words, it's kind of more than just the structure of the church that we're talking about here. We're talking about the authority of the church. One way to put it as bluntly as we can is who calls the shots for what Christianity is. And uh, so it's a pretty foundational uh, question. And, uh, you know, the way I experience it as a Protestant is the Roman Catholic Church is claiming the ability to speak infallibly and to, you know, to take the most recent dogmas. These are not optional. Uh, when, when Pius XII uh, wrote the papal decree accompanying the bodily assumption of Mary in 1950. He said, whoever willfully rejects or casts into doubt, this dogma has completely fallen away from the faith. And similarly with the papal decree accompanying the Immaculate Conception, 1854, Pius IX says, whoever thinks other, otherwise than this has made shipwreck of the faith. So these are boundary markers that are determinative for the gospel. From my vantage point, uh, I know we'll disagree on this, but just to explain my perspective on it is it seems to me that the Roman Catholic magisterium is adding on to the gospel. Because the way that I experience that is I've looked into these dogmas, and I'm not convinced that they have good patristic support. 
uh, and I, I believe they don't have any biblical support. So in a way, I mean, so I'm out. Uh, if the papacy is true, I'm outside the faith. I don't see how my rejection of the bodily assumption isn't a willful one. So that's kind of a way to make it personal and just like how important, if, if a teaching office in the church is claiming to speak infallibly, it's really important to know, do we believe that or do we not? Um, because it will determine where the boundaries of Christianity lie. One way to put it is to ask the question, does the gospel regulate the church or does the church or some teaching office within the church regulate the gospel? Are the people of God under the word of God or is the word of God under the people of God? What's the ultimate backstop that's going to sort of regulate where the boundaries are and what the gospel message is? So that's just a little bit of explanation of how, how I approach it and how I think about the importance of this. And I would agree, it's sort of a determinative issue. So again, that's why I'm, grateful we can have a discussion about it uh, like this. Can I ask a question on that? <laughs> uh, Gavin, um, the, the examples you give, like on the Marian doctrines, I could see how like unaided uh, people could totally reasonably come to dif- dif- different opinions on it. But if you were convinced hypothetically that, you know, there is a vil- visible church that has been entrusted with the protection of the Holy Spirit to persevere in the truth and, and to be able to make dogmatic definitions when controversies arise. Wouldn't you then say, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but wouldn't you then say, I trust that more than I trust my own reading? Or would you say, no, I'm so convinced that the Marian doctrines are untrue that therefore I have to reject the authority of the church as well. Yeah. Thanks for asking about that, Joe. Yeah. I would say, first of all, I do believe in a visible church that's been protected by the Holy spirit. Maybe we can kind of, Actually, I've been I've been already thinking because I enjoyed our first discussion so much. What will be number three? <laughs> and I don't know if we want to get into kind of nature of church and sacrament and those kinds of things because I think there's a lot to unpack there. Where I have some concerns about Protestant views being maybe misunderstood or maybe uh, caricatured a little bit. But um, yeah, I would say it's a tough claim to evaluate because the Roman Catholic Church herself tethers her dogmatic pronouncements to what's unfolding from the patristic era. Newman said the doctrinal development does not supersede the fathers. And these uh, papal decrees are saying we are summarizing the faith and the consensus of all times. So if the claim comes forward that Mary was bodily assumed to heaven, and if you reject that, you've completely fallen away from the faith, but there's no evidence of that until, say, the 5th century, then I would say the, the claim itself is very tough to know how to evaluate, because it doesn't seem to me to be a consistent claim. So I guess my question would be, are the church's pronouncements bound to the patristic era and more basically to the apostolic deposit, or are they not? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I would say in response to that, like, it's not reductive, that it's going to be consistent with the consensus. By the, of the way, father. here we go again. Austin oh, yeah, and, no, this- uh, <laughs> You guys want to go take like a coffee break or no? <laughs> Sorry, but this is, this is, I think this is exactly. So Eric Ibarra uh, watched our last video and he had a really insightful kind of response. And this is one of the things he brought up that we didn't do a, a very uh, explicit job of drawing out. I think he was right that like, we don't want to say uh, wherever just un, unguided patristic scholarship leads. Therefore, like that's always going to be right in the same way that like you can find plenty of people who do new Testament scholarship who, if you just followed their conclusions, you wouldn't be an Orthodox Christian. 
Um, so we want to say something a little different. The example I'd give is in Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem. The question of uh, the role of circumcision in the Jewish law comes up. And if you just look at scripture alone from the Old Testament, you would think that it was a perpetual covenant because that kind of language is used. So you could really see how from a scripture alone kind of perspective, the church would seem like it maybe didn't have a foot to say, no, no, like circumcision is passed away. We've got a, a new covenant. But that's exactly what the church does say and claims to speak on behalf of the Holy Spirit in Acts 15, 28. Like it seemed good to the spirit and us uh, not to burden you with excessive kind of Levitical laws, basically. So in that case, like if I was in 70 AD, just trying to figure all this stuff out on my own, I could easily see coming to either of those conclusions. And so it's just this question of, well, can the church tell me an answer that maybe disagrees with my reading of scripture and I can trust that that's still going to be right. Yeah. Or my, my reading of scripture and the fathers, I guess I, I should, I should clarify that. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I have a worry about a caricature of Protestantism. If anyone out there watching this thinks of it as the Protestants out there, just going by their own individual judgment, I do feel that I'm regularly corrected by the church my claims are not with the church universal, but with the Roman Catholic magisterium as the teaching office that makes those verdicts. It's precisely because I agree with the testimony of the early church that I don't accept the most recent Marian dogma, for example. I know we'll get into Acts 15 a little bit later, so I'll reserve my comments there. But I would just say I don't trust this particular teaching office. Okay. That leads, I think, to my next question. I don't want to cut you guys off because this is fantastic back and forth dialogue here. But this is to Gavin first. So, and I think this is plays off what you just said, I think. These days, I don't think most Protestants reject the papacy outright. I know I, don't, I, know I didn't as an evangelical, so much as they don't really know what it claims. They don't know much about it. I mean, Catholicism may be wholesale as a kind of a curiosity at best or a disfigurement of Christianity at worst, but I don't think that most Protestants actually reject it. But talking about the papacy, though, and for a Protestant like yourself, who's done his homework, you do reject it, and you've investigated those claims, and is it a matter of a lack of convincing evidence for the papacy in the scriptures or the early church, or why would you say you actually reject the papacy? Okay, here will be my longer answer. (laughs) If, if, if you get bored, give me the signal, somebody, so I'll, I'll know when to stop here. But um, just to recount, so I would make two appeals on both of the points you mentioned there, Keith, a biblical appeal and then a historical appeal. And here I'm just sort of regurgitating what um, historic Protestants have said. By the way, um, Protestants have put a great deal of thought into this issue, and I'd really encourage, just like we encouraged people watching last time, to read the church fathers, I'd really encourage people watching to read the historic Protestant theologians. I think sometimes people associate Protestantism with their own experience or anecdotal observations of this or that Protestant group. And, you know, uh, there's actually a lot of differences between what you might bump into at your average church versus if you dig into the Lutheran tradition and read the Augsburg Confession or you read Martin Chemnitz or in the Reformed tradition reading uh, William Perkins, his book, A Reformed Catholic, be really helpful resource on these kinds of conversations, or Turretin, or of course the Anglicans, Richard Hooker and John Jewell and people like that. So I just, you know, no one take my word as the final thing. I'd encourage people to go to the sources uh, themselves here. But let me just say, make two brief appeals. First, biblically, and here's a metaphor. Suppose that both of the front uh, tires on your car are broken and you get your car towed to the shop and the mechanic only repairs one of the tires. 
you can't leave yet. You need both the tires on. Well, as I look at the New Testament, I would say we need two things to make the car drive, so to speak. I'd say we need Peter in a leadership role, and then we also need papal succession. We need the transfer of that authoritative role to the Roman bishops. And Orthodox Christians and Protestant Christians broadly agree on the idea of a leadership role for Peter. There'd be quibbles about the details, but we'd accept the basic idea that Peter was a representative spokesperson and leader among the apostles. Now, we would see that as, and I think there's broad agreement even on this point among Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, that it's a shared leadership responsibility, at least to some extent with the other apostles. The binding and loosing of Matthew 16 is reiterated in Matthew 18. In John chapter 20, there's a similar uh, great authority invested in the apostles conjointly. Um, in Acts chapter 15, which we just mentioned, the, uh, the church comes together and the uh, final judgment is made by James in verse 19. He says, therefore, it is my judgment. And uh, so it's a, it's a shared responsibility. This is why you can find church fathers calling other apostles, like uh, John Chrysostom calls John the apostle, quote, the pillar of the churches throughout the world who holds the keys of heaven. Now he's talking about John, not Peter because this responsibility was not isolated to Peter. Though Peter had a leadership role uh, within among the apostles. Now, the problem is that the office of apostleship is redemptive, historically unique. There's no apostles today. Um, apostles were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, and they played a foundational role in the formation of the Christian church, according to Ephesians chapter 2. So I'd say if there's going to be a transfer of the responsibilities given to Peter— shared with the apostles, to specifically the Roman bishops, we're going to need to see clear evidence of that fact. And that is what I see as lacking in the New Testament. And I don't think it's, yeah, so I don't think it's too much to expect that there'd be teaching. I mean, if there's going to be not just among the apostles, but an ongoing, throughout the church age, infallible teaching office, I don't think it'd be too much to expect that we'd be told so in the New Testament it's like in the Constitution. We get the responsibilities of the president laid out in great detail. It's not as though we don't have passages that outline the offices of the church. And you've even got passages like Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 that outline the offices of the church in relation to the unity of the church. But we don't have anything that says, in effect, it doesn't need to be in these words, but something to the effect of there's going to be an infallible teaching office in the church. There's going to be a pope. And I would say that that's, um, that's a problem. Um, in other words, we've only got one, one tire on the car. If we don't have that, we've only got Peter. We don't have the, the car can't drive unless you get the ongoing. And I would think that that should need to be clear because so much is at stake. If there's anything that would be important for the New Testament to tell us, I should think it'd be this, that there's going to be an infallible teaching office in the church. On the historical side, my second appeal would be just to make two methodological points here. First, I think arguments from silence actually can have plausibility value, uh, depending upon how much you expect the sources in question not to be silent. So that's just a preliminary comment, um, and I can say more about that if that'd be useful. Secondly, um, we're not looking for mathematical certainty when we look at historical documents. There's always a technicality by which you can evade the force of something. 
What we're asking is what's the most plausible view? What's the best interpretation of the data that we do have? All historical knowledge is going to be proximate. It's not going to be mathematical. But we're, we're asking just what's the best interpretation of the data? And I would say basically two things. I'd say first, the best interpretation of the historical data, in my opinion, is that there's no evidence of there being a single bishop in Rome until well into the second century as opposed to a plurality of leaders in the church in Rome. And from there, there's not good evidence that this single bishop wielded universal jurisdiction in terms of infallibility for several further centuries of evolutionary development. And just to unpack that a little bit, um, so I'd say, you know, in the New Testament and in the extra-biblical first-century literature, there's no examples that I'm aware of where there's a single bishop mentioned over a church, but we have a, an abundance of examples of a plurality of leaders over local churches. Sometimes these leaders are called bishops or overseers, the Greek word episkopos. For example, in Philippians 1.1, uh, that letter is addressed to the saints there together with the bishops and deacons. Other times these leaders are called presbyters or elders, Greek word presbyteros, and there's too many examples of that to mention, but all throughout the book of Acts you see the apostles appointing uh, presbyters to oversee churches in Acts 11 and Acts 14. Interestingly, in Acts 15, it's the presbyters along with the apostles at the Jerusalem Council. And then sometimes you have more generic terminology. So Hebrews 13.7 says, obey your leaders. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says, appreciate those who are over you in the Lord. And it seems to me, and I know Joe and I will differ here, but I'm pretty convinced of this, that the terms presbyteros and episkopos are used interchangeably. Let me just explain why. We've got these qualifications lists for each term, and they're unmistakably parallel in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. And in Titus 1, both words are used in the same list. So the logic is like this. Appoint presbyters if they are blameless, verses 5 and 6, verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless. And you see this in other passages as well. In Acts chapter 20, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to him, but he calls them bishops over the church. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2 would be another passage there. So, um, And then we've got the extra-biblical literature. Didache 15.1 references two offices God gave to the church, bishops and deacons. First, Clement, uh, first epistle of Clement chapter 42, two offices, bishops and deacons. Now, in, this, in the second century, you see the emergence of a monarchical episcopate. So a bishop, a single bishop who's over a geographical region with the letters of Ignatius. And see, there's two errors we can make with Ignatius. One would be to ignore him, and some on my side have done that, and that's wrong. The other would be to filter all the data through him. And I would basically say that Ignatius himself acknowledges that the monarchical episcopate model is not universal at that time because he says there's Christians who do all things without the bishop. And then you've got other documents from the early second century that seem to function just like the first century, where you've got Polycarp's epistle to the Philippians, chapters 5 and 6. It's just like 1 Timothy 3. You've got two offices, uh, qualifications for deacons, qualifications for presbyters, and the shepherd of Hermas. Uh, as well. So this is why you've got church fathers. It's not just Jerome. Jerome is always mentioned in these discussions as because he's so clear on this point. That they had two offices, and then it evolved into three offices in response to the threat of heresy. Um, but it's not just Jerome. You can find all the way into the fourth and fifth centuries, you can find church fathers like Theodoret and John Chrysostom, who they affirm the monarchical episcopate, but they say 
the office of presbyter, the office of elder, these terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament. And But here's the problem for the, the papacy is that even in Ignatius, his letter to the Roman church uh, makes no mention of there being a single bishop there. And then we've got the countervailing data of Hebrews 13.7, written to Rome, obey your leaders. Shepherd of Hermas 2.4 says there's presbyters who are presiding over you. And there's another reference in the shepherd as well. So basically the, the claim I would make, and this is why a lot of Roman Catholic historians and people talk about an academic consensus for this point, And then that's, you know, people don't like that because it's an appeal to authority. But the, the reason why a lot of uh, even Roman Catholic historians, I mean, I've been reading a lot of Eamon Duffy who's on the Pontifical Historical Commission. And uh, he thinks that the first time you see evidence for a single Bishop of Rome is in the late one fifties with Anicetus debating Polycarp. And I would say maybe, I think it's a plausible view. I'd say maybe it's a little earlier than that. But um, the point is, you don't see a single bishop coming along. There's no evidence of that early on. All the evidence comes after. Um, And then I would say, once you do have a single bishop of Rome, um, this is where it really gets difficult because the, the benchmark to be met, the burden of proof to be met is universal jurisdiction in terms of infallibility. It's not enough to just have general influence. The Church of Rome, Rome is the capital of the empire. So of, uh, of certainly there is a significant influence that he wields, but you've got lots of bishops who wield influence. I mean, Ignatius writes these authoritative letters, and no one ever says that the Bishop of Antioch has universal ju- jurisdiction in terms of infallibility. And I can understand how if someone's getting to the point of like the 4th or 5th century, uh, and they're seeing sort of, you know, sporadic claims from Optatus or from Leo or from others about the Peter speaking to the Bishop of Rome, how they could say, wow, this must be the papacy. But the problem is the authority was of Peter was shared among the bishops so that you can find similar things said of other bishops and you can find when there's conflict between the Roman bishop and other bishops over and over, the other bishops can simply ignore or flat out reject what the Roman bishop says. And uh, you find an explicit uh, regional jurisdiction for the confirmation of the appointment of bishops in the canons of the 4th century councils, Nicaea and Constantinople and several of the local synods as well. You have um, the basically of these major metropolitan areas, Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, and then later Constantinople and Jerusalem. And they all have jurisdiction over their own region. There's no one head bishop over the others. I think one of the the clearest ways that's been most convincing for me personally that you can see that the Roman bishop did not exercise universal jurisdiction in terms of infallibility is the ecumenical councils. You don't have the Roman bishop and the councils working in tandem with one another. And I'll just finish my comments with this, because uh, this I think is very significant. The So Vatican II says that it's the prerogative of the Roman pontiff to, that's the Pope, to convoke uh, preside over and confirm ecumenical councils. Now, how many of the first seven ecumenical councils were convoked by a Roman bishop? Zero. How many were presided over by a Roman bishop? Zero. But it, the, the, the main problem is you have the church universal looking to the ecumenical councils for definitive statements of on to settle disputes not to the Roman bishop. And there's lots of ways this can be proven. I think some just where you have conflict between an ecumenical council and a Roman bishop. So Pope Vigilius forbade 
the uh, fifth ecumenical council, Constantinople II, from meeting. And the emperor just put him in jail, sent his advisors into exile. They removed his name from the diptychs until he relented. And I, this is another one of the issues, is his initial, Vigilius's first initial statement seems ex cathedra. He says, we pronounce and declare and so forth. And this is another one of the concerns is what's ex cathedra seems like a moving target. Or you have ecumenical councils declaring a pope anathematized. You know, Honorius is anathematized at Constantinople three, ecumenical council number six, and every incoming bishop had to anathematize him upon becoming a pope up through the 11th century. So basically what I'd say is um, it looks to me like the early church did not resolve doctrinal disputes by means of an infallible teaching office in Rome. Rather, it looks to me like the, just like Acts 15, the entire church comes together and there's no one bishop who has a sort of juridical power or who has universal jurisdiction in terms of infallibility. Thank you for your patience. Gosh, that was even longer than I thought. You guys are, you guys are great. Well, I'm going to try to respond to the claims that you're making. Um, there are definitely areas that we agree. Obviously, as I'm sure you're not going to be surprised by there. Are a lot of areas we, we don't see the evidence the same way. And if I'm forgetting any major lines of argumentation, I'd ask you, like, just please feel free to jump in and say, hey, you forgot this, this point I'm making. I, I like the example of the two tires because I think you're highlighting well that there are two things that are, that are at issue here. Was Peter the head of the 12? And is that headship something that was meant to be perpetual? Uh, or was it something just for the first generation? And it's cool that it seems like we're pretty close on, on the first of those, that we see Peter as having a leadership role. I would say just two things on that. Number one, uh, the leadership role Peter has isn't just by virtue of his own natural gifts and talents, but rather we see Christ kind of calling him into that. And I think that's going to be really important because when you look at the whole pattern of the Old and the New Testament, this idea of like one guy with whom the buck stops, whether it's like the patriarchs or the judges or the kings or the high priest or whoever throughout the Old Testament or Peter now with, among the apostles in the New Testament, there's always one person with whom the buck stops. That's going to be at least influential when we're looking at the question of, well, what was supposed to happen after the age of the apostles was over? In other words, uh, the the risk we come into is this risk of basically Protestant until proven Catholic, but even from just like a sheerly neutral perspective, there was such a thing. Protestantism is historically speaking the change, right? It's, it's a protest, it's a reform, and so the burden of proof would seemingly be on the Protestant side. So there should be some pretty clear biblical evidence that like even though. God always used this kind of pyramid structure, even though he always had one guy at the top, he meant to have that replaced with something a generation after the apostles and just didn't leave instructions for it. You see what I mean? And, and then when we read uh, the early church evidence, as I'm going to get into in a second, I don't think we find, I think we find that the same kind of structure is actually preserved from one generation into the next. That as soon as we have clear evidence, the clear evidence is clearly Catholic. Um, the second thing, there were a lot of arguments from silence, and I want to just call that out. I know you say arguments from silence can be valid, and they can, but you're saying basically, well, we would expect to find some clear evidence of this in the New Testament. But as you alluded later, like even the question of whether bishops and presbyters are the same or different office is just from anyone's perspective, I think, not clearly spelled out. There's no verse everyone can point to and just say, here they say it's the same, or here they say they're two different ones. In other words, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, the expectations you might come into expecting the New Testament to clear up 
are not cleared up so sufficiently that there aren't well-meaning Christians on both sides of the question. In other words, coming in and saying the Catholic side's only right if they give this really super clear evidence would be as impossible standard of me saying, well, I need some equally super clear evidence of the Baptist ecclesiology, and in neither case are we going to find it. And if we did, there wouldn't be Catholics and Baptists. Like, one side or the other wouldn't be there. So I'm saying the argument from silence cuts both ways. Um, On the theological stuff, yeah, uh, the early Christians were aware for instance, of Philippians 1.1, Aquinas isn't an early Christian, but he talks about this in his commentary about how like the bishop and the priests are referred to there, and they're, they're kind of taken in under, under one title. Historically, there'd be a lot of reasons for that, uh, that the high priest and priests in the Old Testament were often grouped as one, even though they were two offices, the high priest and then the, the priest assisting him. Those are the prefigurements in the, in the early Christian view of the bishop and priest. So just like you sometimes group the high priests and the priests in the old Testament, you sometimes group the bishops and the priests in the new Testament. I agree. It's super confusing. I wish uh, that God had been a little clearer on this and, you know, would have, uh, it would have cleared up a lot of uh, later ecclesiological controversies, but I will say this, that one of the ways we know what the new Testament means here is by looking at the historical evidence on this. Now, Austin, I know you're going to uh, ask me about mono stuff later on. So I can, kind of flag that for later if you'd like. Um, but I think that is a great place to look. I think Eamon Duffy like radically overstates this case. I think it's he pretty famously like he's a medievalist. He knows a lot about like the 15th and 16th centuries and he's, he's kind of out of his depth on the first and second. And I, I want to get kind of into the weeds on that, if that's okay, into the, the history, because you regularly hear this academic consensus that the papacy doesn't arrive until the, the mid to late second century. And all of the second century evidence we have uh, it, it makes that kind of a laughable claim. That, that sounds too strong. That sounds too rude. What I mean is if, if I were to say, hey, we've had cell phones for 2,000 years, you would say, hey, no, like 30 years ago, I remember not having a cell phone. And so likewise, when people in 180 are saying we've had a single bishop in the city of Rome from the time of St. Peter onwards, if it was really only 30 years old, someone would say, hey, that's ridiculous. I remember when we didn't have a single bishop here. You see what I mean? In other words, like 30 years is too short of a span of time because it's living memory. So when someone says like the, the papacy or the monopiscopacy in Rome arose in 150 and we have clear evidence in 180 that people believe that it, it had been from the time of Peter onwards, there's no way to account for the evidence in 180. Hopefully that's clear. Um, should we just get into the monoepiscopacy in, in the Church of Rome? I think it makes sense to just go there now. Cool. Well, let me start big and move forward. You already mentioned Ignatius, Gavin. So uh, he is a disciple of the Apostle John. He's writing between about the years 107 and 110. And he talks about how there's a monoepiscopacy. There's one bishop. And he says it's for a theological reason. He says uh, to the Magnesians that it's because your bishop presides in the place of God. That's his actual argument. That's his reasoning that we have a mono episcopacy for the same reason that we're monotheists, like a pantheism of different gods doesn't work. Neither does, uh, you know, a, a poly episcopal kind of system of governance that something about the oneness of God is represented in the office of Bishop. You can agree or disagree with that argument, but just know that argument is being made in one Oh seven by a student of the apostles, uh, pretty widely. And you don't find a soul writing against him and saying, He's totally wrong. This is heretical. This is off base. Or you know what? Everybody do whatever you want. There's, there's no rebuttal. So in as much as we're going to argue from silence, all of the evidence says monoepiscopacy, yes. 
Now, you mentioned, Gavin, uh, several sources. You mentioned Shepherd of Hermas. You mentioned First Clement. They mention bishops. They never mention, like, one bishop per city or many bishops per city because they don't, they, like, they're not talking about the local church. And so that evidence just says there are bishops and there are deacons in the church. Both sides agree on that. So in as much as anyone talks about the structure of a local church, they're unanimous on there being one bishop. Um, we find this, since we're talking about the Church of Rome, let's jump forward a second to Against Heresies. St. Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, writing about the year 180, this is about a year before the word Trinity is ever used to describe the Godhead, it says that it's a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church, the Roman church, on account of its preeminent authority. Now, that's going to be a pretty important theme of itself because it's showing that, like, there is this view in 180 that is actually theologically important that you be in harmony with the Roman church. But then Irenaeus goes on and lists by name every single pope from the apostles down to the present. He goes with Linus, Anacletus, Clement, and so on. So by 180, you've got people, including a French bishop like Irenaeus, claiming that there's been this chain of Roman bishops from the time of Peter. Now, if the truth was that there was only a chain from like 140 or 150 or 160, that claim would, be, would have been laughed out of the room. There'd be no way to, you couldn't lie about something that recent, which is why I say, like, if I said cell phones had been here for 2,000 years, you would all laugh me out of the room and say, that's ridiculous. We remember when they weren't here. Like, living memory is long enough that the second century academic uh, consensus has to be false. It goes against all the actual second century data that we have that speaks into the question. Tertullian, writing about the year 200, Uh, gives a theological reason why this is so important. And for people who think, you know, apostolic succession is just this weird idea or who cares, I want you to listen to this quote. It says, but if any heresies venture to plant themselves in the apostolic age so that they may be thought to have been handed down by the apostles because they existed in their time, we can say, let them exhibit the origin of their churches. Let them unroll the list of their bishops coming down from the beginning by succession in such a way that their first bishop had for his originator and predecessor, one of the apostles or apostolic men. One, I mean, who continued with the apostles. For this is how the apostolic churches record their origins. End quote. Two things. First, when the Nicene Creed says that there's one holy Catholic and apostolic church, that's what there's claim. You know, the claim is the true church, unlike all heretical sects, can fulfill this claim that Tertullian's laying out. That they can trace a succession of single bishops the apostles down to the present bishop. So if that isn't true, then the creed isn't true. Like if that isn't true, then the church isn't apostolic. But second, Tertullian is clear that every apostolic church, the church in Rome, but also in places like Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, Ephesus, etc., could do this. They all kept these written records naming by name just who these bishops were in the exact order. Irenaeus actually says the same thing. He says it's within the power of all, therefore, in every church who may wish to see the truth, to contemplate clearly the tradition of the apostles manifested throughout the whole world. And we are in a position to reckon up those who were by the apostles instituted bishops in the churches and the succession of these men to our own times. So Irenaeus is also claiming, yeah, it isn't just this one church who has these particular records. Like every apostolic church keeps a record of the monoepiscopacy that existed from the time of the apostles forward. Those are enormous claims to put a little scope on it, like think about first uh, Corinthians 15, when St. Paul says that Christ appeared to 500 people, most of whom are still alive, though some of them have now fallen asleep. When we read that today, obviously all 500 of those people have fallen asleep. They're all dead. 
But as Christians, we know like, well, in the first century, if someone wanted to fact check Paul, there were 500 people they could talk to, or you know, the better part of 500 people they could talk to, to find out if Christ really rose. And the fact that this evidence was, was accepted as true in the first century means Paul had to be telling the truth. That's kind of the argument. Likewise, when Tertullian and Irenaeus and people are saying, hey, every church keeps a record of exactly which bishops they you know, had one after another from the time of the apostles, if they're making that up, anybody can fact check that and say, hey, this is a crazy claim you're making. It's not true. So a lot's writing on this claim because this is, as Tertullian kind of says, one of the ways that the church fights against heresy. I'm going to give you two super nerdy analogies. The first one is that it works basically the same way that blockchain works in cryptocurrency. Uh, you prove that you're dealing with the real deal rather than a counterfeit by producing the whole chain of transactions back to the origin. That's how apostolic succession works. We can say, boom, 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 boom. Here's where we are now. So you know it's not like some latecomer. Or to take a different kind of nerdy example, uh, I used to be a lawyer. It's what we call chain of custody in court. Like if you're going to offer evidence, you have to show whose hands the evidence has been in from the moment it was collected so we don't have to worry that the evidence was tampered with. That's what's going on. That they're saying the doctrine can be trusted. It's pure. It's, it's not counterfeit. It's not tampered with. And we can trace every bishop from the apostles forward. So really in response to that, there's a couple things we could say. Number one is, okay, we believe this evidence. Like, all of the apostolic churches, all of the Orthodox Christians in the second century seem to be saying this is true. So we'll trust that it is true, even if we don't have all those records today. And so, you know, we trust the monoepiscopacy. Or two, we have to basically say there's a vast conspiracy in which every apostolic church actually lied about its own origins, doctored its own records, invented its own history. And this is a kind of bald-faced lying, by the way, that even the heretical sects didn't fall into. So either there's one holy Catholic and apostolic church, or, you know, she's sitting on a throne of lies. Like either we accept the Catholic claim or we reject the second church as kind of organized liars, in which case, logically, like we've thrown into doubt the reliability, the historicity of Christianity. Now, I actually have a few more things I want to say on this, but Gavin, I wanted to give you a second because I know having been just on the other end of this, if you have things you want to say before you forget them, I want to give you a second to be able to say them. That's gracious of you. Thanks. And sorry, I didn't pause more in my first answer too. No, it's okay. I loved it. <laughs> Hopefully if anything came up there, we can circle back to it. But um, I'll just be brief because I don't, you know, I, I don't want to pull us too, too much into the weeds, but I do want to respond just a couple things. I think the idea that like, there's always a, the buck stops with one person and that's kind of how the church has always been. I don't actually agree with that. I think that there's nothing comparable to the papacy throughout the old Testament. You don't have an infallible teaching office throughout the old Testament. I'd also say that the change it's not Protestants introducing a change. I would say that the change is from apostle to Bishop and specifically from Peter to the Roman bishops. That's the change that is the second tire that we need evidence for. And you know, you mentioned kind of like the evidence being a little bit unclear about is it two offices? We've all got to kind of wrestle with that. And I would just have to state my disagreement. I think that in the first century, a plurality of leadership, whether you're talking about the church generally, or you're talking about particular local churches like Philippi, Philippians 1.1, it's written to the bishops at the church of Philippi. In Acts 20, the bishops of the church of Ephesus. I think every single piece of evidence we have from the first century without exception, mentions a plurality of leaders rather than a singular leader. Now, I have a lot more to say about Irenaeus. I, I, I don't want to get too much into this all now, because I would first of all say that many people reject the papacy, but accept apostolic succession. So I don't see uh, 
the issue of apostolic succession is kind of where I want to put the main focus. It kind of comes in with this discussion, but it's they're not linked at the hip. I basically just say that I just don't agree that it's good evidence to argue from the late second century. And I, would, I wouldn't see it as a vast conspiracy because the, the development is not from one structure to a totally radically different structure. We're just talking about an evolution within the structure. We're talking about these two offices, uh, and one of the offices has two words used, and it's a refinement or an extension of one of these terms being used for us. Uh, and I actually think when the absence of the apostles, heresy is pounding at the, at the door, Irenaeus is feeling the pressure of that. He's using every tool he can to defend orthodox teaching. I think his appeal made a lot of sense in that context. Now, a lot of there's some eccentricities with the appeal that Irenaeus makes. He doesn't say Peter was the bishop of Rome. He doesn't say it traces back to Peter. He's outside of Vatican I, so far as I understand. He says it's Peter and Paul together, and they were apostles. He doesn't mention Peter specifically as the bishop. He also has a lot of other strange ideas that he attributes to oral tradition, like the idea that Jesus died as an older man and things like this. So I guess I'd say I just don't think late second century evidence is good enough, especially given the stakes of the discussion. I think we need first century evidence. But again, to not commit the same error twice, I'll stop before I go on too long. No, I think that's those are really good areas. So a couple things. I think we can start pushing back further and say, the, you know, the Muraturian fragment in about 170, this is the oldest biblical canon in existence. It mentions in passing that the Shepherd of Hermas, which you mentioned before, was written at the time when uh, the Hermas's brother uh, was the Bishop of Rome. Now that dates to about 140. We, we know when, uh, was it Lin- No, it wasn't Linus. Who was it? Uh, whoever the brother was, Hermes's brother, well, we know, and I think it was Pius I, actually. His yeah. brother was, was Bishop of Rome in 140. And that's before someone like Eamon Duffy even thinks there was a single bishop in Rome. And so already, you know, the second century evidence is saying, uh, recently, you know, three decades ago, this guy was bishop. And then 1,800 years later, you have someone saying, oh, no, that wasn't true. And this is a time when people would have known better. So, of course, I'm just saying there, the, the academic arguments to, to argue against the monopiscopacy or to argue that it doesn't emerge until the mid-2nd century or late-2nd century are, are contradicted by the mid- and late-2nd century evidence that say to apparently uh, no dissent, this isn't something new. This is something that's been here for a long time. Like, in, in the same way, like, to take a silly example, if you wrote about a chair that you had in your room, and you were, you said, I've had this chair for five years. Well, I may never have heard you write about it, but I'm going to trust that. Okay. Well, if, if you say you've had it for five years and no one's disagreeing with you, that seems like at least the presumption is in favor of that. So likewise, when they say the chair of Peter has been around from the time of Peter. Okay. Well, I'm inclined to agree with that without someone saying, no, 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 it actually arose later. Now you alluded in your earlier statement to the one guy who seems to be on the other side of the aisle, there, Jerome argues that the monoepiscopacy develops. He's actually arguing in the middle of a dispute where he seems to just be overstating his case. Without getting too much into the weeds, a deacon is arguing to Jerome that deacons are more important than priests because deacons work directly for the bishop. And Jerome, who's, uh, I think it's okay to say about a saint, a little hot-headed and is a priest and not a bishop, reacts to this by saying basically, uh, bishops are basically just glorified priests. They were originally one and the same, and then they developed. He is the only person who makes that claim in the first, say, 450 years of Christianity. And he's making a claim 300 years after the events that he's describing happened. 
So he's making a historical claim. He's not making a contemporary claim. He's not making a claim that anyone at the time says or believes, right? He's not saying in the church here in the fourth and fifth century, we have, you know, one office that's presbyter bishops and one office is deacons. In other words, the only way to defend something like the Baptist or more broadly Protestant kind of vision of ecclesiology is to assume that wherever we don't see clear evidence that it was Protestant then, and everywhere we do see clear evidence, they're just overstating their case in response to heresy or, or whatever the case. So that's what I mean. We're like all of the clear evidence is on the Catholic side. Uh, but well, okay. just to, just, yeah, yeah. Please. Just to interact very briefly and then I'll kick it back to either you or, or Keith or Austin, Keith and Austin, just uh, <laughs> interrupt us when you want. Um, this is fun. So we, we tend to, we get going and we, you, you know, you just wind us up and here we go. Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't agree that all the evidence, I mean, you know, part of the reason I think the idea of development is reasonable is we just see so much of it. When did the, when does the term priest start to be used? Late second century, third century, when are priests required to be celibate? Way after that. When the whole hierarchical structure with cardinals and archbishops and so forth, it takes some time to develop. And... Uh, I'd say, again, I, I just don't think this late second century evidence should override the clear evidence from the first century. Like Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, I've mentioned a couple times, or Ephesians 20. How do, what's your view? How do you understand clear references to a plurality of bishops in particular local churches in the first century? Yeah, so you already alluded to the answer in part, which is that all the evidence you're talking about is, well, the apostles are still around, and the structure of the church necessarily differed. So the bishops are the successors of the apostles. It's not, as you said earlier, that, that we think the bishops have the same role as the apostles. That's not the Catholic claim. Like the Catholic claim isn't, so like even when we say Peter is the first bishop of Rome, we don't mean he's the same like bishop of Rome in the same way every subsequent bishop is. This right. means that when we talk about bishops who aren't apostles at the time of the apostles, things were murkier ecclesiologically because of the presence of like certain people who had this special uh, once in a history of the church kind of gift of authority that you see the normal structure of the church much more clearly, ironically, once the apostles are gone. The other place you see it very clearly, if you really want to see a good source of appeal to Rome, um, the mistake, okay, this is, this is a much uh, earlier thing that you said, but I want to make sure that we correct it. You talk about how, like, well, the, the papacy, papal infallibility can't be true because, like, other bishops had the ability to ordain bishops. And it's like, well, of course they did. Papal infallibility has nothing to do with ordaining bishops. Like that, that, that's that a, wasn't my argument. I, that was not against papal infallibility. That was against universal jurisdiction. And it is contemporary Roman Catholic canon law that the Pope can contravene the appointment of bishops. And that is contrary to Canon six of Nicaea and Canon two of Constantinople. So a couple things there in Canon six of Nicaea, it models the other bishops authority off of a pre-existing Roman authority that isn't given to it by the councils. So all the other metropolitans get their authority from councils. If you read Canon 6, it uses pre-existing Roman authority as a model for these subordinate kinds of authority. So you actually see, if understood correctly, you actually see what we're, we're currently talking about, the universal jurisdiction, because the local jurisdiction uh, of the Pope is being used as a model and not given to it by a council. Uh, so if you go and read those canons, you'll see that every other metropolitan, every other patriarchate gets its authority. That even when Constantinople comes along later and tries to put itself in the number two spot, it doesn't have the audacity to try to put itself in the number one spot. It tries to ride the coattails of Rome by saying it's new Rome, 
but still says it's second to old row. All of this is, is just reading between the lines of these conciliar debates. And there's a lot more that could be said here. Uh, but the, the idea here is that it doesn't like Rome never derived its authority from a council. You can't point to the council that gave Rome its authority. You can only point to the council that gave smaller subordinate bodies uh, their authority. But second, there is even today local authority that the Bishop of Rome has that uh, if, if you misunderstood universal jurisdiction to just mean the, the diocese of Rome is the whole world wouldn't make any sense. Like you have the diocese of Rome, you have the, uh, what is it? The vicariate of Rome, like the, the ring of diocese around it, where it basically serves as like an archbishop. And then you have like the, the broader authority the Pope has that he exercises globally, but the Pope doesn't have the same authority in say Kansas city that he has in the diocese of Rome. It, it misunderstands the, the nature and it, it misunderstands it in some kind of subtle ways. I only mention it to say in the early church, if you're expecting that kind of evidence, you won't find that because you won't find that kind of evidence in the 21st century church. Like if, if the bar for like what we expect from the papacy is so high that like the papacy today still doesn't exist, uh, then I think we're, we're maybe calibrating it wrong. That's a really murky and badly worded answer. But I, before actually before we kick it back to the moderators, there's, there's one thing I wanted to uh, kind of turn around because when we were talking about like the evidentiary burden, I think there's a few things to say here. Uh, first, two quick observations of the Church of Rome. St. Paul writes in Romans 1, 8, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And then in Romans 16, 19, your obedience is known to all. A few decades later, St. Ignatius refers to the Church of Rome as the one which presides in love over the whole church. So the opening observations here are just that the Roman church from the beginning is number one, world famous, number two, famously orthodox. Number three seems to have a special role of authority, even if we aren't immediately clear what the contours of that are. So St. Paul says to Festus in Acts 26, 26 about Christianity, these things did not happen in the corner. Likewise, Rome's not in the corner. Like Gavin said, it's the heart of the empire. It's, you know, it is the capital of the known world. It's the center of everything. So if orthodoxy was replaced with heresy, if, you know, uh, papalism is replaced with like this Baptist ecclesiology, whatever it is, we should expect those things to be pretty darn noticeable. Given this, I think we should be able to see three things, Gavin, if your claim is true. Number one, I think you should be able to name some of these co-ruling bishops in any of the local churches, whether it's Rome or any of the other ones. Like, who were these simultaneously ruling bishops? Because we have the names of all of the monoepiscopal lineage. So if the monoepiscopacy isn't true, what's the true line? Number two, uh, who was then the first pope or the first bishop of Rome in the singular sense? if not St. Peter, uh, who is the first, you know, sole bishop. And number three, um, what's the outcry when the monopiscopacy is introduced? Now you say this is like a subtle change, but I want to push back on that. Like if you've got a group of co-equal ruling authorities and suddenly one of them usurps it and says, I'm the sole authority from here on out, I would expect, like if, Gavin, I know you're senior pastor at First Baptist in Ohio, right? If you got up and said, I am now the bishop of Ohio." I expect your congregation would have a word or two about that, right? Like, I expect. Will you have my back, though, if I do? <laughs> I would love so. to see what happened. I mean, I would certainly have you on and, like, want to have a, at least a good Q&A about it. <laughs> um, you know, so, but seriously, like, in 1532 to 1534, when the Church of England went from being headed by the Archbishop of Canterbury and ultimately the Pope to being headed by the King, they made the news. People lost their heads about it, uh, literally. And, you know, it was, it's the stuff that history is made of and history records. 
The crazy thing about the kind of this, this conspiracy of silence is that this incredible shift, unlike anything we've ever seen, happens apparently in every apostolic church, that every apostolic church becomes monopiscopal and no one anywhere writes about it, either in support of it or against it, or even just observing that it's happening or recalling that it happens. Rather, like all of them have this weird recollection that it's always been that way dating back to the apostles. And, uh, you know, to throw one more thing uh, in the last thing I'll, I'll say there, uh, with the naming of names, I want to just be clear that this is not as unreasonable a burden as someone might expect. Like in, in Ignatius's letter, we know uh, in the Church of Magnesia that there are two presbyters, Bastus and Apollonius, because he names him by name. We know there's only one bishop, Damas, because he greets him by name. So if there's some church that has two bishops or a panel of bishops or whatever, we should expect to know like some of the names of, of these people. But instead, the best we can say is sometimes when they refer to the governance, they say bishops and deacons. And sometimes they say bishop, presbyters and deacons. And even people who are clearly ideologically aligned, like Ignatius and Polycarp, seem to use the two interchangeably, even in the case of Ignatius, when you have someone who very fervently, very obviously believes there's a theological basis for there only being one pope. Or, excuse me, only being one bishop. Okay, I know that was a lot. I know people who expected just like papacy stuff are probably like, they're talking a lot about bishops per city. But I think it's really important because, Gavin, like you said, this is part of the Catholic claim. The Catholic claim is, you know, there is this succession of bishops. But this is also, I want to point out, the claim that the Nicene Creed is making when it says the church is apostolic. That if you understand what the early Christians meant by apostolic, they didn't just mean has generally the same faith as the apostles. They meant could trace this lineage name by name. Well, I'm hesitant to continue to push forward here. Uh, 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 maybe just one comment. Um, you know, I, I, some of the questions, I think you gave like three things you think my view should be able to adhere to or name or something like that. Yeah. One of them was like, you need to know some of the names of these individual bishops. Well, I do think we can name some individual presbyters and bishops, but I don't see why that would be required. I mean, when Philippians 1.1 says that it's written to the bishops of the church, why would you need to know their names to see, oh, there's a plurality of bishops at the church of Philippi? Well, because, because the people who took the other view, who were overwhelmingly the majority throughout Christian history, read those verses as referring... So, so for instance, if I read just parts of the Old Testament, I would see lines to the priests and the Levites. Most of the time, you just hear about the priests and Levites and could be forgiven for thinking it was a two-tiered structure. But it's actually a three-tiered structure. The high priest, the priests, and the Levites. But the high priest and the priests often gets lumped together. So Aquinas and plenty of other people come across Philippians 1.1, these other passages, and say, yeah, they're doing the same thing. Like they're grouping the bishops and the priests together which is, again, this was the Jewish practice. Read the Old Testament and you'll see if you just had like certain passages, you would say, oh, well, there's clearly a two-tiered priestly structure. You have priests and Levites. It's all over the place. Uh, likewise, if you're going to talk about the canon of Scripture, it's often just the law and the prophets. You would be forgiven on the basis of just Jesus' own descriptions for not knowing that there's a third section, the writings, right? Like the Tanakh has three sections, not two, but you only sometimes hear about two. So likewise, like, yeah, you, you sometimes hear the bishop and the priest described as just overseers collectively. And later, this takes a more nuanced uh, technical distinction that becomes much clearer. And when I say later, I mean like a couple decades later, not a couple centuries later. Uh, well, I, <laughs> I don't want to keep pushing it, but just to say summatively is in conclusion of where we differ. Um, 
Yeah, I just, when I hear, and I've done a lot of reading through trying to really sympathetically understand how does a Catholic interpret this first century evidence? Because I would disagree, whereas you see it as like universally in favor of a monarchical episcopate. I don't see any trace of a monarchical episcopate anywhere in the first century, let alone Rome. So I Can I I give you one more example that I didn't give of first century evidence? I'm sorry, I I know I'm cutting you off, but because you've made that point a few times and I've dropped the ball in responding to it. In 97, when Clement responds to the controversy in Corinth, there's two things to notice. Number one, the apostle John is still alive and Corinth is much closer to where John is in exile than they are to Rome. And yet they write to the Bishop of Rome and Clement responds and answers and settles an internal dispute within the church. Now this is different than a Bishop writing an exhortative letter like Ignatius does. Rather, we have very clearly explicitly from the introductory lines of first Clement, they wrote asking for this, this question uh, to be answered. And so the, the letter in response is dated to about 97, but he apologizes for the delay in, in getting back with them because the church of Rome was being persecuted. So we don't know when the Corinthians first letter was written, but we know it's certainly while John is still alive. It's probably within a couple of years after he finished writing the book of revelation, if like the traditional dating of 90 is to be believed. So John is alive and active and kicking. And yet here they write to the church of Rome, and Clement is responding and feels totally at ease, settling in an internal dispute about the respect they should pay to particular offices. Uh, that looks for all the world like the Catholic claim in 97. Well, uh, to respond to the Clement and also the claim of Ignatius when he says the Church of Rome presides in the region of the Romans and then he says presides in love, I've always found these claims to argue from the papacy from these to be really weak arguments. The fact that one bishop will write to another church to settle a dispute is not proof of universal jurisdiction. We find lots of bishops doing that. Athanasius will field requests. People call him the prince of priests, and he arbitrates on matters in other places. No one says the bishop of Alexandria has universal jurisdiction. Um, similarly with, with other bishops. But, but back to my original point, just to finish off, I would just say that uh, it seems to me, as I try to sympathetically understand the Catholic claim about the first century evidence, that these terms episkopos and presbyteros come to a point where they have no meaning because they can be used in all these various ways. And it seems like you've got, at the end of the day, you have an evolution, you have a development, because you say, well, while the apostles were still alive, you could have plurality of bishops at a church, but then after the apostles died, it changed. So you you amount to the to a similar, though different kind of evolution. And I would just say, what's the best interpretation of the evidence? What's most plausible? That when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he says the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, What's the most natural way to take that? When, when with Titus one, when Paul says presbyter must be above, appoint presbyters if they're above reproach. For an overseer must be above reproach. What's the most reasonable way to interpret that? And it's not just Jerome. There's many fathers who take it the way that I take it. So, that's just uh, some some final comments of where I would differ. The last thing I'd say is when the Roman Catholic, when the Roman bishop does start to make more aggressive claims as you get into the fourth and fifth century, oh yes, there's tension. There's a lot of tension. And uh, as I say, basically, I would say in every case without exception, the Roman bishop loses and the other bishops win and they just ignore what he says. So um, that'd be another reason why I, I don't see universal jurisdiction in terms of infallibility, not only in the first century, but in the first several centuries. So can I respond to there? There were kind of new claims. there. I know we, we could just go uh, this, this whole time, but a few things first 
it's not that the words don't have any meaning, but it is that sometimes you'll have a word where, where there's a question about whether the word is being used in a technical sense. Like when, when Christ says many are called, but few are chosen, the question of whether he's using the word for election there in the same kind of technical sense, Paul is using it totally valid question about like, okay, so the same Greek word is being used. Does it mean the same thing in both places? Likewise, when St. Paul refers to himself as a servant, he gives the word diakonos. He's literally calling himself a deacon. Likewise, when, when Peter refers to himself as a fellow elder in 1 Peter 5, uh, all of those things taken in kind of the, the plain language strict sense that you're talking about would make it sound like maybe apostles don't exist. And we just have elders and deacons and Peter's an elder and Paul's a deacon. But of course, we know that would be absurd. Like we know just taking it at just a literal, what does the Greek word just mean on its own? And if we understand it to mean the same thing in every case, that, I think that's just bad exegesis. And I think that one of the ways we know it's bad exegesis is no one in the second century is saying, this is what that means. Like the people who natively speak the language aren't saying, this is what that means. The people who inherited churches given to them by the apostles aren't saying, this is what the apostles set up. Like we're reading about the church. They were living in the church. And they weren't saying, yeah, this is what the, like the Philippians have a church. Like they're, they aren't just a letter. They're a people and they aren't saying, oh yeah, we do, we have, we used to have a panel of bishops and now we have just one. So the reason I think you should be able to name the names is because we can name plenty of names in the opposite direction. We can name individual bishops like Clement in the first century. We can name no panel of bishops. We can no, name no co-ruling bishops in any church anywhere. So if you're going to claim universal first century evidence, I don't think it's too much to say, okay, like who are these people? What did these panels look like? What was the structure of these churches? And, uh, you know, how did these uh, presbyteral bishops meet? What was that like? How many were there? You know, like any of those questions, was, was one of them above the, none of those questions are answered. None of those evidence, none of those questions are in evidence because I think it's entirely, uh, historical fiction. Like, I, I think we just don't like all literally all of the evidence that says, here's what the local church looks like. says there's one Bishop at the top. Like literally every time you hear names named or you get a, a careful explanation of what a local church looks like, it, it says there's a Bishop at the top. Then. So the best we can say is sometimes um, it's, it's looser. For instance, Gavin, you mentioned first Corinthians 12. If you read first Corinthians 12 as giving offices in the church, you're missing bishops and presbyters and deacons. And instead you have apostles and teachers and you've got these kind of, like you have a totally different list than what either you or I believes in. If my recollection of first Corinthians 12 uh, is correct, like he, you've got the workers of wonders and you got like, like it's a, it's a charismatic list. It doesn't appear to be a hierarchical list. Right. And so that's what I'm saying. Like if you went just off of a sola scriptura and ignored all of the church evidence, I know by the way, Gavin, you don't endorse that kind of sola scriptura. But I'm saying your argument now is ignoring all of the actual church fathers on this point other than Jerome uh, in favor of just the way you would read the Greek, right? No, I, I wouldn't agree with that. But I'll, I, I'm going to let you have the last word on this one, Joe, so that we can kick it back to them so that uh, we don't keep going. Because I know what will happen is if I say, oh, I just have this one more comment and <laughs> we'll be here for another 15 minutes. So I just state my disagreement, uh, respectful disagreement. I've mentioned other church fathers, for example. My comments about 1 Corinthians 12 were really in another context. But um, but but I'll I'll uh, I'll leave it there. We, I think we've kind of had a great back and forth about that, and maybe Austin and Keith want to kick us forward. <laughs> well, it's going to get even even better, I, I think. And this is a fantastic discussion. I, I love this. I'm sure listeners, viewers are just 
eagerness up, guys. So thank you for, for digging in so deeply here. And we have no problem sitting back and letting this magic just happen. This is truly awesome. Joe, when I had you on my show a while back, we spent the first 30 minutes of the show, I think, talking about just the, the logical case for the papacy. And there's just, I think there's a lot of rich, rich and compelling evidence just in the logical necessity for a single teaching office where the buck kind of stops. But that's for a different time, maybe, because I want to dig into the biblical case. Because as Austin tells me, who's read your book, it's just full of scripture that underpins why you think the papacy is evident in the Bible, in the New Testament, in, you know, in the Old Testament in a sense as well. So I wonder if you can give us, because we could be here again for another hour just talking about the biblical case, maybe put out for us what you think is the strongest biblical case for the papacy, and then I want to know if Gavin can, why he doesn't find that compelling, if that makes sense. Yeah, Matthew 16 is a lot of fun to talk about. Uh, that's a pretty well-trod area. I want to go a different direction. I want to talk about Luke 22 at the Last Supper. So to give a little bit of context, the apostles are arguing about which of them is the greatest, and Jesus corrects them, and he says, uh, this is beginning really about verse 24. Uh, he says, let the greatest among you be as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. And then he gives himself as the exemplar of this, saying that I am among you as one who serves. Now, notice here what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't tell them, hey, that's bad to want to be the greatest. He doesn't say there's no leader. Uh, he doesn't say there is no greatest. He doesn't do anything like that. In fact, he, he then goes on and promises the 12 that they'll eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So rather than denying hierarchy or authority or anything of the sort, uh, he affirms it, but then redefines it and uh, gives it what, to use kind of the jargony modern term, like he defines it in terms of servant leadership, right? That goes from about verse 24 to verse 30. In the very next verse, verse 31, he turns to Simon Peter and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, and this is you plural, so you all, that he might sift you all like wheat, but I've prayed for you. Now he turns from the plural to the singular. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brethren. So three things to note here. First, like I said, Jesus switches from the you plural to the you singular. Satan's trying to destroy all 12. Jesus responds not by praying for all 12, not by just putting up some divine barricade against, you know, satanic wiles, uh, but praying for one of them, Simon Peter. He does this immediately after saying that the leader is the one who serves the others and then tells Peter to serve the others. And this is clearly not just a difference in kind. This is actually a distinct commission from what the other 11 are given. He doesn't say to all 12, you should all serve one another, the way we might expect him to. He tells the 12, but they're going to be servant leaders in the kingdom. And then he tells Peter how he's going to be a servant leader, even to the rest of the 12. So the apostles are called to be servants of God. And Peter is called to be servant of the servants of God. Now, this is one place to, I think, start the conversation. It is by no means uh, the only place. If you want more, I would say there's a book. I, you know, I've, I've heard. Now, uh, you know, my book, Pope Peter, I go into a lot more. But for reasons of time and just having more of a focused discussion, I think it's good to start here. It, it gets to the actual heart of the papal claim. It's not about the Pope having universal jurisdiction to appoint bishops. That's not what the papacy is about. That's not the purpose of it. The Pope is there, like Peter before him, uh, to serve the bishops in their service of us. Like, that's the actual calling and ministry of the Pope. That is the criterion by which you can tell a good Pope from a bad Pope is how well he serves as servant of the servants of God. And so that's 
the biblical foundation. Like if you get Peter's role vis-a-vis the other 11, then you get the papacy. I'll just, I'll just stop there <laughs> abruptly. I don't know if you, want, you guys want me to interact with that or not. What, what do you think of that kind of a claim? I mean, there are all, there are all kinds of other uh, biblical cases that, that can be made, as, as Joe mentioned. Um, maybe you find some of the, those less compelling. What about Joe's claim here with the idea of, of the Last Supper? Not compelling enough to, to underpin the papacy? I mean, you, you agree also already on, on, I think you do, on the primacy of Peter in a sense. So maybe you'd say that, that, that this maybe shows that, but that office ends, you know, when... when Peter passes away, but how would you respond to something like that verse underpinning the papacy? Yes. Uh, let me encourage people watching this to buy Joe's book and read it. It's a great book. He, uh, he gets into, yeah, Austin is our showing his copy. looks, mine is more marked up and wrinkled than that one. So nice. Um, mine is somewhere in the back. I'd have to go look for it. I wasn't ready for this. <laughs> Yeah, and, and check out Joe's blog too. He's got a lot. He's uh, got a lot of great arguments about these things. So, uh, yeah, my basic response to that would be similar to what I said before. I think everything Joe just said is only one wheel on the car. I think that basically um, the Orthodox and the Protestants are totally in agreement that Peter had a leadership role. But what? So you know, Joe's book uh, chapters four through eleven are really deep in this, and he makes a lot of great arguments that I would agree with a lot of. Now, there's not total agreement. So you know, at a couple of points, there's a reference to Peter being sort of something more than an apostle and things like this. And I would so we quibble on the details of how we understand it. But basically, I would say yes. I think Peter clearly had a leadership role among the apostles and was a spokesperson for them, a representative. For them, and so forth. But the the concern is that um, it it, in my opinion, should not be simply assumed that responsibilities given to Peter are just going to roll on. That needs to be clearly established in the Holy Scripture because so much is at stake. If there's an infa- a, a a shepherd, a pastor over the whole church who can speak and teach infallibly and. Yes, his main purpose isn't just sort of jurisdictional matters, but those do fall under his purview. If that's the case, we need more than just Peter. We need to see teaching. Like the New Testament does have passages that envision the church as a big structure. Or, you know, as I mentioned with Ephesians 4, we've got lots of passages that teach us what are the offices of the church. And that's where I would just say we need teaching on this to accept, because it's not as though apostles continued. We need teaching to say that that would clearly... Uh, resolve that. I mean, how this whole discussion could be so clearly resolved that there was a passage in scripture that just said, there's going to be a Pope. We don't have anything like that instead. So I would argue that we can't simply assume that Peter's responsibilities are handed on uh, to uh, the Roman bishops. Peter was an apostle. Apostleship was a redemptive, historically unique office bound up with being an eyewitness of the risen Christ. I'd also say, just as you look through, you roll through the rest of the New Testament, how did they resolve doctrinal disputes? Uh, how did, what, what do we actually see in the book of Acts? Well, as I mentioned in Acts chapter 15, Peter is not in a sort of uh, summative role there. It is James' judgment that carries the day. It's the church coming. It's just like the ecumenical councils. So I'd, I'd, I basically just push back by saying, hey, we agree about Peter. But again, I think that's only one wheel on the car. I think that's a beautiful response. I think that's a really rich and nuanced response. I want to tease out the handful of areas in which we we do disagree, right? I think the role of Peter vis-a-vis the Council of Jerusalem is a little more nuanced and probably points to one of the ways we need to flesh out the role of the Pope vis-a-vis ecumenical councils a little more and probably more than we have time to do tonight. 
But I'd say this, like the original opening of the door to the Gentiles is given to Peter singularly, right? Like he's told to go to the house of Cornelius. And so he, in his own person, without waiting for the council or anything like that, acts because he's been commissioned by God. And because, you know, the book says you've got to act. Um, that's a terrible Acts pun, and I, I refuse to take it back. Uh, then after that, like, so in Acts 10, he opens the door to the Gentiles. In Acts 11, he defends the decision, and originally people are very happy about it. There's an, an ensuing, ensuing theological controversy over Peter's decisions, but also over the activities of Paul and Barnabas and everything else, right? So then the Council of Jerusalem meets. But they don't decide anything contrary uh, to what Peter had done. Like, Peter is able to act, and the council's able to act, and there's a clear sense of both of them somehow having the ability to act in this kind of authoritative way. Like we don't want to say Peter overstepped his bounds by going into the house of Cornelius without waiting for the council to decide something like that, right? Like both of them are able to act. And so to get back to something Gavin said earlier, in Matthew 16, Peter is given the ability to bind and loosen. In Matthew 18, the church corporate is given that, which we see exercised at councils. Now, uh, I want to be clear that we don't want Matthew 18 to nullify the word of God by nullifying Matthew 16, by making it a dead letter and saying what was originally given to Peter is now just given to everybody. Like, no, no, these are two distinct grants. In addition to that, the keys of the kingdom are only ever given to Peter. They're never given to the church corporate. There's one important difference between Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. One power is given to both. One power is given just to Peter. So I would say in, in terms of like, how do we see Peter acting in the book of Acts? Like it, it's a little different than, than just like the council of a rules him or something like that. Like, yes, this is not a place where Peter's like swinging his authority, but it's clear from the other parts of the book of Acts that he has real authority to swing. Uh, earlier in Acts 2, it says of the 12 that Peter got up with the 11. So when we talk about Peter sometimes sounding like more than an apostle, I'd say he sometimes sounds in scripture like more than an apostle. At the empty tomb on Easter, it's go and tell his disciples and Peter. Like Peter is regularly given what appears to be uh, something over and above just being a disciple, over and above just being an apostle, which, which sounds really crazy. That, of course, leads to the bigger and I, I think really important argument that Gavin makes, which is, well, what happens after the apostles die? And uh, the first thing I'd say is that if we agree on the first wheel of the car, we should be asking why. Like, why did Christ have something like a papacy with Peter while he was on earth? Like, the papacy was never less important than while Jesus was there in the flesh. You see what I mean by that? Like, you never needed a pope less than when the pope was sitting across the table from Jesus himself. Uh, and yet, if that structure is there then, if it's there during the ministry of Jesus, that's already going to be at least normative evidence uh, for, for that being the case. Uh, but the second, I, I think it would just be saying, like, again, this is, this is the structure that he uses throughout. So, yes, it's true. Part of the apostolic mission uh, ends with the death of the apostles. But it doesn't mean that, that uh, the idea of a hierarchy or having one person as a point on top of it ends with that. And there I would just point to, again, the, the rest of the scriptural evidence. Uh, and then the final thing, Gavin, you said, actually, no, this is a pretty big divergence from the Old Testament because of infallibility, right? I'd say two things. One, the thing I was just saying is the pyramid-shaped structure being the way God works is what I was arguing was, was common. But second, if you read like the Jewish Encyclopedia on Binding and Loosening, they talk about this belief that there was infallibility when the Sanhedrin acted and when the high priest acted. Uh, and they, the term they had for it was binding and loosening. 
if that's true, if that's right, and you know, Jewish sources are arguing that it is, that's pretty strong evidence that when Jesus is referring to the binding and loosening, it's not just a callback to you know Isaiah 22 with Eliakim, it's also uh, this reference to a real kind of binding infallible authority. And the final thing there is that we, we do find these references to something like infallibility. Uh, for instance, in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 11, when the Sanhedrin is conspiring against Jesus, the high priest says it's better for one man to die uh, than the entire people. And John comments that because he's a high priest, the Holy Spirit was working through him, and so he spoke prophetically, kind of in spite of himself there, right? Matthew 23 Uh, Jesus tells the people to uh, listen and observe to whatever the Pharisees tell you because they sit on the chair of Moses. Like ex cathedra comes from Matthew 23. So these ideas of like something like infallibility existing in Jewish thought, that was the last thing I wanted to say is like, those actually do exist. So if Peter's being given something like that, headship over the people, something like infallibility, at at the very least is a pretty strong evidence in favor of the model that Jesus set up being papal and not Baptist. Sorry, I know that was really long-winded, but... Let me just make a brief comment sort of off topic so that I won't uh, get into a back and forth that will uh, lead us down a rabbit trail. But just on, on Matthew 16 as an encouragement for people watching this, I think this would be a great thing for people, if, if people are watching this and are wanting to kind of dive deeper into these issues and, and study it for themselves, to read through the Church Fathers on Matthew 16. It actually is a really fascinating question to ask. I mean, we all agree that the meaning of the rock can be polyvalent. It can be multiple things. So it can be Peter and Peter's confession, or Peter and Christ, or all three. And the interesting question is, what's the logic by which it can be multiple of those things? And I would just say, one of the most surprising things in my uh, study on these matters thus far over the last year or so. I'm actually I'm not, this hasn't been my main thing. I'm reading Joe's blogs from like 2008 and I'm like, wow, I wasn't thinking about the papacy back in 2008, but, um, but yeah, the, you probably so have the, more friends, Kevin. <laughs> I was, yeah, I wasn't very studious back then, I guess, but, um, yeah, but, but, but it was so fascinating to see the church fathers on, on Matthew 16 and how basically what I, discovered is how many of them say it's Peter and the, his confession or Peter and Jesus. And the logic by which they get to that is they say not Peter in his person or Peter in his office, but Peter in his symbolism of Christian unity or Peter in his faith in Christ. So I would just want to encourage people um, take a deep dive into that. That would be a great area for, for further exploration. What did the church fathers think about Matthew 16? So Kevin, can I ask a question? I know you're right about. I was trying to get us back on track. I, I just, I'm oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, I'll, I'll let, the only only thing I wanted to ask is who says it's not in his office? I see a lot of people say it's not in his person, but that's the Catholic claim too. Like uh, Francis isn't just like Jorge Bergoglio. Something different is happening in his capacity as Francis. And so, likewise, like Simon isn't just Simon Barjona. Something different is happening in his capacity as Peter. So I think like everything you described other than the word office there is the Catholic view um, of Matthew 16 or a Catholic view of Matthew 16. Like you said, it's polyvalent, but, but who says it's not his office also? Oh, I can't remember. I made a video about this several weeks back and my uh, went through about 15 of the church fathers. And uh, I don't know, people could go watch that video and kind of see my recounting of the data, but uh, I won't try to scratch my the recesses of my brain right now. But yeah, the, the point is though, it's, it's not Peter in such a way that's bound up with him. 
It's what he does, and it's what he symbolizes in that act of doing, namely confessing Christ. And it, uh, although Peter's name is changed, you know, and we, we have a certain sort of structure among the apostles, we also have James and John's name changed to the sons of thunder. We've got this inner three among the twelve. That doesn't seem to pass on in some way. So uh, I guess I'm very wary of these arguments of kind of something's there's a structure with the apostles, and so therefore it has to pass on into the church. I just see the apostles as having a redemptively, redemptive, historically unique mission in the first century. So I get that. I actually, I agree with at least a big part of what you're saying there, but there being something unique about the apostles, I guess I'm just, I'm imagining the person who says uh, the same thing that what you're saying, but about marriage, who says, yeah, sure. In the first century, like marriage was between a man and a woman, but like, how do we know that passes on and is still true today? Like, I guess, what do you, it seems like in every other area, if Jesus says, here's how it is, we assume that is kind of the norm, right? Like we, we don't say, but where does he explicitly tell us it's going to still be the norm tomorrow? So if your view is, yeah, Jesus does create Peter as the head, but how do we know that passes on? I guess I'd just say, like, are there other areas you would do that or other doctrines on which you would make that same kind of line of argumentation? Marriage and the apostles are pretty different. You know, the apostles all died. Marriage is the same thing in the first century as it is today. The I mean, all the married are- people died. But I mean, that's kind of begging the question, though, right? Like, I think if the question is... Um, is authority different than marriage in terms of like doctrinally, whether it passes on, like whether the structure of the one is God given and therefore perpetual or whether it's just passing away. Like for instance, focus on the family has a really good argument in favor of traditional marriage on just the fact that like God gave it to us. It's not for us to create it or define it or redefine it. Like we, we discover it, right? We don't define it. And the Catholic claim on the church is, is identical. It's just, yeah, God gave it to us. It's not for us to like invent or define or redefine and so, but it sounds like you're saying, but where does he explicitly say that we can't redefine it? Or where does he explicitly say, you know, no. that the structure won't, won't change a generation later? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that marriage is uh, the same thing in the first century or in the second century, but the apostolic structure, by all accounts, transfers into a different kind of structure. And it seems to me that the comments you're, on, you're unfolding here assume a continuity that I don't accept. Yeah. So they assume uh, that, that it goes from Peter to okay. the Roman bishops. And I, I'm just saying we need some proof of that. I, I'd be curious. This is a question that we skipped uh, earlier that I had in my notes here. Um, and it's on this idea of development. So I'm curious, Gavin, if you don't take the, the evidence that Joe would suggest um, from the early church as being uh, showing a papacy, other things that we see that we believe um, as as Christians, all of us believe the Trinity, the canon of Scripture, the nature of baptism, which we disagree about a little bit, but we we see it as being something important. A lot of these things developed. Um, why wouldn't you be okay with saying, okay, the papacy maybe has some roots here in what's happening with Peter, but then it developed a bit, and you know, you know what I mean? Like there, there's there's development in other areas of Christian doctrine. So why not the office of Peter as the Pope? Yeah, thank, that's a great question. I would see these other areas as developing from the apostolic deposit in the first century. So if we think of the Trinity or the natures of Christ or these things that are sort of formally codified later on, it's uh, we've got a lot of material to work with in the New Testament itself. You know, I'm doing in my apologetics book, which is coming out later this year, uh, I interact a lot with Bart Ehrman, and it's been a lot of fun to to kind of push into that because I haven't thought about that before. And it it really solidified me in my faith. It was really wonderful to see. I disagree with him that Jesus doesn't claim to be God in the material in the gospels that's earliest dated. I think that 
it's so clear in all four Gospels that what merits the charge of blasphemy from the Jewish leadership is that he's claiming to be divine, and, and more importantly, he's acting with that authority. And so, um, and then all throughout the New Testament, we've got so much material that would already start to push that development forward. So we're told that Jesus is, uh, you know, in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 and so many other passages, we're told that Jesus is divine. Uh, or even the issue of the canon, where we've already got material in the New Testament, such as 2 Peter 3.16, that, indic- that starts the d- process of thought. So when Peter calls Paul's writings scripture, and the discussion about canonization doesn't start in the fourth century. It's an ongoing process unfolding from the first century. So essentially, I would make a distinction between different kinds of doctrinal development. On the one hand, doctrinal development that unfolds from the apostolic deposit in the first century. And on the other hand, doctrinal development where, like I said with the Marian dogmas last time, and I would say with the papacy, it starts after the apostolic de- de- uh, deposit. It's It comes in after uh, the first century. And I would say, you know, there are some Catholics who argue for, because we, of the historical evidence we're working with, they argue for sort of an evolutionary or developmental model of the papacy where it does sort of come in gradually. I do think Vatican I rules that out. I think Vatican I requires you to believe that it starts with Peter and that that's where it all begins. So I don't think there's any sort of back hatch there that we could, we could go through. We'd probably all agree on that. But uh, so, yeah, I see different kinds of doctrine development. development out of the gospel development external to the gospel. I think that's a good distinction. Um, I think I would maybe just flesh it out a little further in saying maybe development contrary to the gospel. Like I think false development is importing something new. The problem with like arguments from silence where you say, well, the first time after the new Testament, we see a church father talk about X, Y, or Z doctrine is always going to be some date later than 90. You know what I mean? Like, so who you, whatever, like the first church father that ex- explicitly addresses a Trinity or whatever issue, you can say, well, we don't see it until like, we don't see the word Trinity until 181, for instance. Like if, if we're going to think Irenaeus isn't reliable in 180, that kind of throws into question Trinitarianism in 181. If like by that point, we've already lost the apostolic thread. Um, well, the word, the word isn't until 180, but you've got sure. Um, the Son called God in the New Testament, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the triadic formula in which we're baptized is in the New Testament. Monotheism is explicit in the New Testament. So the word is later, but the idea starts immediately. Right, right, right. Like, I, I agree with all that. And obviously, like, uh, we're, we're in agreement on Trinitarian Christianity and it being, you know, authentically what the Gospels are preaching. I would just say, like, something similar is going to be true of the papacy. Like, like as you said, uh, there's a lot of biblical evidence for Peter having some kind of headship role. And so someone who believes in the papacy is going to say, well, look, all of that is right there in scripture. And our argument is like the triangular shaped structure that God's always used for his people. He continues to use like that. That's just a continuation on just like the Trinity's, you know, the triangles shaped structure that continues on. That makes sense. To that. I, so I think, yeah. you know, like it's, it's hard sometimes to know if a doctrine you're disagreeing with is found in scripture, because that's often the root of the disagreement is how you're reading scripture versus how other people are reading it. And I'd agree that the word papacy isn't found early on, but I would go further and say that neither is the idea. Um, so that's, again, the one wheel on the car kind of idea, but I've already explained why that, so I don't want to rehash on that. <laughs> guys this is fantastic and i i have been enjoying this so so much i 
It's because you're not in the hot seat. We're, we have questions for you next, Austin. <laughs> Speaking of hot seats, isn't it like 63 right now in Ojai? Like, I know this is neither here nor there, but like, if I have a bug to pick with you, it's like, we are freezing here in Kansas City and you're like comfortably in like a, a light shirt. <laughs> You know, I've learned not to bring up the weather this time of year because <laughs> as much as I joke around about it, it, it is hard for people who have seasonal affective disorder. So I won't tell you what it's like here, but yeah, we're very blessed. I'd complain about the weather in Chicago, but then there's Keith over there in Canada and I'm sure he'd have things to say. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> oh guys this has been so much fun all right so we've covered a lot of ground but one thing that we i mean we've talked a lot about bishops i think we had a solid hour on the uh mono episcopacy which was great and we've started getting into the scriptural foundations and the historical foundations we've talked a little bit about this idea of infallibility but i want to press in here a bit because i think it's one thing for a catholic to say peter was the head of the apostles we've seen that there might be some agreement there it's another thing to say that his authority was passed down to his successors which we've hashed out a bit but it's yet another though to claim that this authority that peter Peter and his successors had includes infallibility. And I imagine for many evangelicals watching this, they might be able to grant some of the earlier ones, but this is where they just kind of have to jump off the train. And so in your book, Joe, you say that one of the biggest uh, difficulties with the idea of infallibility is that people just simply don't exactly understand what's going on here. And it is nuanced. So could you walk us through maybe a bit of what the Catholic Church is claiming with infallibility, and then, if you'd like, also why you think it's uh, a reasonable claim. Sure. So I think the the easiest, clearest way to start is to say infallibility is not a gift to the Pope. It's a gift to the Church. Uh, it's a protection from the Pope. Uh, putting it that way hopefully clarifies a lot of what we're going to say. You know, um, it's possible for the Pope not to be in heaven. Only about a third of the popes are canonized. Like we hold that hope for the other two thirds, you know, it's not like the ones who aren't canonized are definitely not there, but I just mean like it's, it's not a foregone conclusion um, that every Pope is holy. It's not a foregone conclusion that every Pope is a great theologian. It's not a foregone conclusion that every Pope uh, has every kind of duck in a row, but um, papal infallibility is kind of a baseline protection of the individual believer and of the church. And to kind of flesh that out, Philippians 1, uh, which we mentioned before, includes in verse 27 uh, the uh, call to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Uh, and then he goes on in chapter 2, uh, calling them to have the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So we can describe it as just kind of like a, a one heart and one mind unity. Like there's certainly the unity of charity, but there's also a doctrinal unity that is at least included within this idea of one mind. Like one mind unity might be more than doctrinal unity, but it's definitely not less. And so you have things like the Council of Jerusalem. Like you have a way where the visible church can help enforce doctrinal unity because it's part of the call, not just of St. Paul to the Philippians, but of Jesus to uh, both current and future generations, right? Like John 17, uh, verse 20 to 23, he says, I pray not for these only, but for also for those who believe in me through their word. So when we're talking about like, does this stuff continue after the apostolic age? This part definitely does that they may all be one, even as you father are in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us. So the world may believe that you've sent me. So if the church is to be credible in the proclamation of the gospel, the church is supposed to be one. 
Like otherwise you get people like Bart Ehrman saying, Hey, this stuff I was taught as a fundamentalist turned out not to be true. And I'm seeing different denominations preaching different things. And I'm seeing these apparent discrepancies and chucking the whole gospel. Like that's kind of the, the danger Jesus warns about. Like the scandal of denominationalism is not, we can't just sing Kumbaya around the fire. The scandal of denominationalism is like people won't be saved through the blood of Jesus because they'll reject the whole thing as a joke because they see us fighting. That's John uh, 17. Like that's the last supper. That's what, what Jesus warns. So we, we have to be one. We have to be of, of one mind, but that can't obviously the second point here uh, be at the expense of the truth. Like we can't sacrifice truth for the sake of unity. Now, uh, Ben Witherington, the third has a good thing where he describes it from a Protestant perspective. He says, there's always this tension in the church between unity among believers and uh, truth as it's understood and held by believers. So he says, Protestantism is tended to uphold truth with a capital T uh, while intoning unity with a lowercase U. While from his perspective, Catholicism takes unity with a capital U at the expense of truth. Now, the important thing to note there is that Airman's Witherington's solution just doesn't work because he's saying choose unity or truth. And he's basically saying it's a catch-22. There's no way out of it. But that can't be true if if we have a loving God. Like, you're not going to be commanded to do two impossible, incompatible things. Like, that's just contrary to the nature of who God is. Uh, So he can't be calling us to be united and be in the truth and then making it where we have to actually choose one or the other and can't obey him. Like he, he doesn't force us to disobey him is the idea. The only way out of that is if we can be assured that the visible church never teaches heresy. Like at a bare minimum, when Jesus says upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. At a bare minimum that precludes the visible church falling into a total apostasy. At the very minimum, it precludes uh, the idea that to be a part of the visible church in the structured full sense that the early Christians understood the visible church requires you to give up orthodoxy. Uh, it's never going to require that it is because that would, that would make this catch 22. You see what I mean? So the whole idea of papal infallibility is that God prevents the Pope from ever forcing us to choose unity or orthodoxy. Uh, put more positively, this is when Christ talks about the spirit of truth uh, in, in John 14 to John 16, coming to uh, lead us into all truth. It is this promise, not to the individual believer, but to the body corporate. It's to the visible church uh, to be led into all truth. And that one of the ways this happens is that sometimes the church says something dogmatically. Gavin gave the example before that with the Marian dogmas were proclaimed, it was take it or leave it, if you reject this, you're rejecting full unity. That is a great way of seeing that they're protected because they're, they're basically calling uh, all of us to say, okay, which, well, do you believe that you can believe these things and be in full unity with the church or does believing these things come at the cost of heresy? You see what I mean? So like, if we can trust that we can have full unity and that won't come at the expense of heresy, then infallibility has to be true. There, there's no logical way around that. I think I, I sort of talked backwards into that seven different ways, but hopefully it's clear what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Uh, you, you don't have a way of having both of those things unless God prevents uh, the church from falling into to heresy. And then the obvious example here would be the scandal of denominationalism, not between Protestants and Catholics, but between Protestants and Protestants, right? Like when you don't have anyone even pretending to be infallible, everyone can say united until a doctrinal dispute rises and then you get more and more churches.
Can I just interact with that briefly before we go on to the next question? I don't I, want to I elongate hope you will. Yeah. The discussion too much here. So I'll just, if I could just unpack a few thoughts and then I'll kick it back to Austin or, or Keith. But I, I would just, I, one way to respond to this whole truth versus unity catch 22 kind of argument, basically I just make the appeal. I don't think that the Roman Catholic church does have unity. And I'm not talking about internal divisions within the church. So I'm not, you know, there's, you can find extreme liberal, extreme conservative within the Catholic church, just like you can find it without Protestant churches. I'm not talking about that, but here's a metaphor for, to catch the meaning. Suppose there's 20 kids playing kickball at recess and they have a vicious disagreement about how to play kickball. So they split up into two different separate kickball games and there's 12 playing in one and eight playing in the other. Now, if the 12 say we have unity, what they're really saying is we have unity with ourselves, but the question is, do you need unity with those eight people over there? When the Roman Catholic Church dogmatized papal infallibility, lots of Catholics did not agree. They split off. They, and that we call them the old Catholic Church. There's a lot, Every major juncture in the Catholic Church loses people. There's people who think the Church went off the rails with Vatican II, and we call them the state of Acantus. Um, who was Jesus praying for in John 17? Was he praying for the old Catholic Church? Was he praying for the state of Acantus? Was he praying for the Orthodox? Was he praying for Methodists? Was he praying for Lutherans in John 17? Unless you say Jesus was only praying for Catholic Christians in John 17, then no church uh, uh, realizes uh, his prayer. No church has unity with the people we need to have unity with. And it's a little unfair when we compare Catholicism and Protestantism. Joe has not done this. This is not a response to Joe, just a general, actually most of this is just general comments right now. Um, but, you know, you can tell I get a lot of YouTube comments from Catholic and Orthodox Christians because sometimes I feel like I need to, come on, guy, I want to, I you know, speak to these things. But I, I, I can only imagine what it's like if you're a Catholic and you're getting lots of Protestant comments. So I, I understand that goes both ways. But anyway, um, yeah, I think pe- people need to understand that Protestantism is not a church. So you can't expect it to act. It's not like it's the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Wow, look, the Protestant Church is you know, 40 billion denominations or, or, or whatever the latest figure is that will come out because the figures seem to grow and grow and grow. But um, you should compare the Catholic Church to a particular church, like the Lutheran Church or the Anglican Church or something like that. And then you see the Catholic Church is bigger, but infallibility is no guarantee of unity. It's only, the papacy only guarantee is the only the guarantor of unity for people who agree with it. Anyone who leaves, anyone who doesn't agree leaves, like the old Catholic Church did. So it's it's not a guarantor of unity, and I think basically the sooner we can recognize that every branch of Christendom has work to do with respect to unity, the sooner we can start to make progress on that. As long as we think it's the people over there who need to work on the unity problem, we're, I don't think, yet at a point where we, we can even start to make things better. I know you said you were going to kick it back to them. Do you want me to respond, or do you want me to? I can give you the last word if you'd like. No, it's fine. If you, if you have something productive, go for it. Well, yeah, I guess I'd just say that's a little bit like saying, well, the union in the civil war wasn't united. Keith, I hadn't used an American example yet. So this is for you. (laughs) Uh, It's like saying in the civil war, well, the union wasn't united. It wasn't united with the Southern states. Well, that's, that's kind of begging the question. Like the whole issue of unity is that there's something to be united to. Like this is kind of like the English paper who, when there's fog in the English channel said fog in the channel, continent cut off. Like that Europe was trying to reconnect with the island rather than the other way around. Uh, Like in the example you gave of kickball, like if there's one kid playing by himself, there is a united group. And then there's one kid who's off on his own. Uh, That I I think I would agree with that analogy and say, yeah, they have unity. Like the other 19 kids or 12 kids or whatever who are playing together and working as one have unity. And that if they're going to be one, 
the, the outliers need to rejoin that because to use your, your the, like the rest of what you said, it isn't like the other eight in the kickball game are one United Protestant kickball group. It's like they've each gone their own way. And so you have eight that aren't in unity and 12 that are, are united with each other. I guess I'd say it this way, like almost every Christian I know would at least agree that if Catholics and Protestants were going to be reunited, it wouldn't be like in the Methodist church or the Lutheran church. It, it seemingly the only place they could be reunited would be the Roman Catholic church. I, I just to, I, you lost me when it went from eight and 12 kickball players to 19 and one. That's <laughs> probably because I, 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 I took, it, I took it back when I realized I was changing the numbers. Uh, no, so no, no, we'll, we'll okay, use 12 so. and eight, but I'll just say the, the eight aren't playing together. Like if, if the eight are the different denominations then, or churches of Protestantism. But again, to compare apples to apples rather than apples to oranges, to compare the Catholic Church to the Anglican Church rather than to compare the Catholic Church to Protestantism. You, the Anglicans are playing kickball. They got their own kickball game, okay? The, the, eight, the 12 are bigger than the 8, but neither can claim to be a, a realization of the unity Jesus prayed for in John 17. I mean, was Jesus praying for Anglicans or Orthodox Christians in John 17? Oh, I, I think he's praying for all of us to be one. The question isn't isn't who so much as where, in, in my view. Like when he's praying for all Christians, all who believe in the gospel to be one, is what does that look like lived out? What does it look like localized? And, and I would say, it, it, if go back to like, I don't know, go back to like the Council of Florence in the 15th century, when the Coptic Church and the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic Church all agreed that the Pope is the head of the visible church, and they agreed on the seven sacraments. They agreed on the filioque. They agreed on like all of those things. There was very briefly what appeared like there was going to be total unity again among Christendom, even resolving a lot of the older schisms, right? All of that, if there is to be unity, I'm just saying it's going to be uh, with the big league. Like I, I totally agree with you. Like the scandal of denominationalism doesn't just hurt Protestants. Like the scandal of denominationalism hurts Catholics too. And, and we are better off when we are one in heart and one in mind, like uh, the Catholic church, I think any Catholic will tell you has been greatly enriched by biblically knowledgeable Protestants converting and becoming Catholic. Like, I, I think that's a good example of uh, part of the realization of this vision of, of taking kind of these best elements of, of kind of Protestant biblical formation, uh, bringing it into the oneness, into the union in, in a way that is really mutually enriching. I'm trying not to cut you off, but since this question came up, let me just uh, uh, reiterate the point that I'm trying to make, which is if Jesus was praying for all of us in John 17, then the Catholic Church does not have unity. No church has unity. We are a fractured church. We are broken into pieces. We're all trying to figure out how to put the pieces back together again. So long as the unity problem is pushed off and seen as the fault of the other churches over there, I would say that... Um, that's a hindrance, not a help in the resolution of it. To answer from a Protestant standpoint of where I would see the locus, you've mentioned where is unity. I would say it is in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his gospel. So I'd say in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, for example, we see that the unity of the church is bound up with the unity of God himself. And that we actually see that in John 17 as well. And I would say that every effort at unity must pass through that and terminate in that. And so what really is the issue here is we have different views of how to play kickball, and to use the metaphor. You think the uh, unity in Christ is in the Roman Catholic Church. I've laid out some of the reasons even tonight where I differ on that. But my basic point is the Catholic Church does not have unity. It doesn't have unity because the, what, what Jesus prayed for is not realized. And it is Catholic, you know, denominationalism is a term that 
has reference to Protestant churches, but as I say, whenever there's important junctures or turns in the Catholic tradition, people break off. And uh, that didn't start with Protestantism. There's all kinds of divisions and splits that precede us. So I'll, I'll leave that there, though, on the unity question. And this is a great trailer, I think, for our next discussion, which might be on the visible church. I think it'd be a fantastic tie-in here because that's it's, it's very good, very well. Yeah, this has been so great. You guys are, once again, such a great pairing. It is so much fun just getting to sit here and watch the back and forth. And it is it is such a pleasure to get to do this. Keith, thank you for setting this up. It is such a privilege to get to be a part of it and to just have a front row seat to a conversation that I enjoy listening into and getting to host it is a real joy. So thank you both. I want to give both of you uh, an opportunity real quick to let people know where they can find you. I think it's been mentioned at different times, uh, but always want to make sure that people can find what you guys are up to. And as always, I'll be putting those links in the description. Gavin, you want to go first? Sure, I'll just say thank. I want to thank Joe for the discussion and Austin and Keith for facilitating this. I know it's actually a lot of work for you guys to put this together. Thank you for doing that. I think it's a, a wonderful opportunity. People can find out about me on my website, GavinOrtland.com. I have a little bit of information about my books and that kind of thing there. I also run a YouTube channel, as Keith mentioned. I'm just kind of still starting off, and I started about six months ago or so, and that's called Truth Unites. People can find that as well. I just liked it on Facebook today. I just discovered it on Facebook today. So, um, oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, also, I just want to say something real quick. Catholics, you don't know, like, Gavin is, is kind of like famous for being kind of a rock star. His whole family is kind of famous for being rock stars uh, in the world of Protestantism. So uh, that, that cred may be lost on some, but I want to make sure. I think by this point, I've got enough comments when I Catholics take over Ojai with the mono episcopacy <laughs> in Ojai, then I will have arrived. My brother and sister-in-law live in Ohio, so I'm I'm looking forward to uh, them dealing with the rival claimant. I mean, we've got an anti-pope here in Kansas, so there's a whole other can of worms there. Um, no, anyway, so my stuff, I blog at shamelesspopery.com. I have a podcast at the Catholic Podcast. You can get it at cathpod, C-A-T-H-P-O-D.com. And I work at School of Faith. Uh, we have a daily rosary. You can get it at dailyrosary.net. You can find out more about us at schooloffaith.com. And there's a lot of cool stuff we do live and digitally and you name it. So thanks a lot. This was this was so much fun. I, I've enjoyed all three of you guys. Gavin, I know we had a lot of back and forth. It's so good to be able to do that with a brother of Christ and, and in a spirit of hopefully just this mutual striving for truth. And I, I'm humbled and enriched by, by the contributions all three of you have made, really. Amen. <laughs> well said. Well. Guys, thanks so much for being here. And uh, God bless everyone who's watching, everybody who's been part of this. Thank you so much to both of you and awesome new as well for hosting. Thanks, guys. What a conversation. What a conversation. <laughs> what a wild ride. I hope you loved that, guys. I really do. So much fun producing these conversations, putting them all together, making them happen. It's a lot of behind-the-scenes work between Austin and myself, coordinating questions and schedules and all that kinds of stuff. And huge thanks to Austin and to Gavin and Joe for taking part in these conversations. If you like them, guys, please share with friends. Please retweet them, put them on Facebook, email them to your friends and family. Hey, write down the URL, put it in a piece of, in an envelope and mail it to somebody. 
get the word out, guys, please, because these conversations, I think, are so important. I mean, a bit biased, of course, but really necessary to help further these kinds of things. I think it's just so important, and I'm happy to be able to have these in the way they are done. So kind, so cordial, and so intelligently. It's awesome. I'm blessed to be a part of this at all. TheCordialCatholic.com is my website for show notes for links to this show as well. YouTube.com slash TheCordialCatholic for our YouTube channel. This video, of course, is found on on Austin's YouTube channel, Gospel Simplicity. Look that up, please, if you want to watch this video unfold. At CordialCatholic, TheCordialCatholic on Facebook, and CordialCatholic at gmail.com is our email address. Please do send me a note. I love hearing from all of you guys all the time. Patreon.com slash CordialCatholic or PayPal.me slash CordialCatholic to support this show. Please leave a rating or review if you can. Help to push the podcast out to new people, and I'm so grateful. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll see you again next week. God bless, and take care. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at Patreon.com slash CordialCatholic. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.